Welcome. You're listening to Book Lab on the Pony Pod. Here, we talk with bookworms about their latest page turners and why you should read them too. Today, we're talking about Hunter S. Thompson's 1998 novel, The Rum Diary. And I'm also joined by the DC's Audrey McClure. Audrey, say hi. Hello. Um, this is the second time that Audrey has been on the podcast. Uh, second and final time, though, because this is our last episode of season one. So we've got to make the most of it. For yeah, sure. yeah, we will. Um, so we both listened to The Rum Diary as an audiobook. Mm-hmm. Audrey sent me The Rum Diary, and she was like, you should listen to this exclusively because the voices <laughs> are so good. Um, and I was like, why would I listen to six and a half hours of a book? Because the guy has a funny voice. Lo and behold, that was a major driving force in the book. Um, so the novel was published in 1998, um, but it was actually started in 1961. Mm-hmm. And it's very much based off of Hunter Thompson's life as a, I want to say, failed sports journalist in um, Puerto Rico. Uh, it's kind of in lieu of new journalism, um, but it's mostly fiction. It's very much inspired, and a lot of the prose is very evident. Um through his inspiration from Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Um, Essentially, it's revolving around this reporter named Kemp, who comes from America, to work for the San Juan Star as a reporter. It's a failing newspaper. And the whole thing, um, if I could describe it in just one phrase, is the Wolf of Wall Street for journalists. It's very hedonistic. um, It's very barbaric. um, And the title doesn't leave a lot to the imagination in the sense that it's all just one big rum-induced I would say nightmare in some circumstances, but there are moments uh, that I really appreciated that I thought were fever pretty, dream, pretty, maybe very fever dream. Um, but allegedly, all of this is accurate, <laughs> according to interviews that Hunter Thompson has done afterward, and letters and correspondence. We see that most, if not all, of the events that he fictionalizes happened some way in his life or were influenced by the people around him and the reporters at the better newspaper um, (laughs) in Puerto Rico that he was not working for. Um, But yeah, this was uh, very much, I would say, it's a a fantasy for for the the young white man (laughs) to to, to start journalism. just being able to do your work and travel and be this awesome writer all while being incredibly drunk and destroying every organ in your body. I think it's probably like the best chronicle of the absolute worst in journalism. Like for all like as much as like journalists love to say this is like a public service job, which it is. It's a very important job publicly informing the public is like a very worthy and noble cause, but like it really just like gets at like all like that little like the selfish reasons why you like love this job like you're going around you get to travel and like just like chasing that like glory of that story and like just being being able to say you're a journalist like getting that press pass like it's just like gets that feeling so well and even though like i am not a (laughs) white male in the 60s just going around puerto rico with careless abandon just being racist do whatever i want like i like you see that character kemp and you're disgusted by him but you like you're along for the ride like you love him you're like this is my man kemp yeah i get that for (laughs) sure but also i i get that feeling where it's like i'm free i'm the i'm the man that's what it really is it's just Mm -hmm. this it's just a ton of characters who are unbelievably narcissistic but they're allegedly 
good at their job. So (laughs) it's that kind of respect um, that you just are forced to have for people who just are incredibly dedicated to the craft. Um, But it's also, I understand, one part of the reason why I despise Kemp and the other journalists so much are not just because they're terrible to the locals (laughs) and um, they, like, commit several crimes. Objectively bad people. Yeah, they're objectively bad people. (laughs) Um, I also feel for the man, capital T, capital M here a little bit. No. And I want to know your case here. I feel for Lauderman. I know Lauderman, for some context, is the editor-in-chief of uh, the San Juan Daily News. And are the, the San Juan... Yeah, Hans, Daily News. Daily, Daily News, News. The Daily News. Um, and and he sucks. He's not good at his job. Um, he's really bad at connecting with people. And that's part of the reason why we like Kemp so much is because he embodies that journalistic ability to observe people and um, really read people and get them and connect. Like, mm-hmm. he, for all of his flaws, he gets people. And Lauderman does not get people. And that's really the, you know, capstone of journalism. And this is the man that you like? And I don't like him. I really feel for him because he <laughs> has this moment where he says, God damn it. <laughs> the voices are great in this audiobook. He says, God damn it. I just, I did this and I put all my savings in this because I believe in journalism and I believe in freedom of press. And, <laughs> and, and then he says this and you can just imagine his, like, hands are in his hair and he's just sitting here and i just sympathize with that feeling of running a dying media <laughs> outlet or, or trying to like yeah you know trying to be the head of, of a of a media outlet in which everyone who's working for you and with you just despises you because the circumstances suck too i okay i understand that take however I will say that when Kemp, after that whole little thing where Lauderman's like, media, freedom of the press, Lauderman or Kemp says he's a phony. It like takes him out of it because, and I think when I, when I listened to that little extract, I was like, this is very much, I think, how a lot of like journalists feel today when like they're in like dying newspapers and there's a separation between like who's running the paper and who's writing the paper. And oddly enough, the people who are doing the real groundwork and writing are the ones who are like, God, these people, like these people who are writing it suck because they don't get it. And I think Lauderman is like, when he says he's a fraud, I was like, that is like the absolute best way to talk. Because like we talk about like revenue models and like different like streams of like, I don't know, doing journalism. And it's all super interesting and, you know, important. But like, I think Kemp just is that character that really speaks to our like inner person just like just write the damn thing like just do the work and like let's let's make this paper happen though i mean i i will say that the <laughs> the imagery of this like dying like shell of a newspaper that just gets smaller and smaller is very evocative of feeling certain feelings for for us probably that's a problem though with camp it's because like yeah i i i think none of us want to be lauderman yeah. you know but we Poor Lauderman. That's a problem. That's that's why I sympathize, because he is someone who is out there desperately looking for money for this newspaper, and he's just not talented. And I think that's why it also is people love to associate with our main characters, Gaiman and Salas and Kemp, who are talented, but they're all so self-serving. And I'm not saying that Lauderman isn't self-serving also, but he is doing the... He's holding up the team and there is no team there is a bunch of people who are individually working for themselves and so Lauderman goes and he does 
all he can. And unfortunately, he's just a spineless, talented, talentless dude. Mm-hmm. And God, like, we all think, no, we're not like that. But we are not perfect people. We are not it's magic true. people. And when put in positions of power and you have no one to help you, I think we'd all flail a little bit. I think we'd all be a little lotterman. That's, you know what? That That's true. And I think another thing that I really like about, like, this whole audiobook is, like, how much it captures that, like, as much as, like, Kemp is, like, this kind of glamour, he's not even really, but as this, like, really, like, rough, like, kind of charismatic, rough-and-tumble guy, like, I think that point about all of us being a little bit like Lauderman really stands true, even with the characters that are very much not him in the novel, because he, I mean, Thompson, like, writes a lot about just these, like, scenes of, like, just, like, these feelings of desperation and, like, being entirely lost, like, near the end of the book, when he's talking about, like, the mornings in Puerto Rico, like, that was, like, some of his best mornings where, like, everything felt, like, bright and real and, like, things were just about to happen, and then you get in the midday and, like, this, like, the oppressive, like, heat and, like, the realization that what you're doing and what you're writing about is just, like, worthless (laughs) to pretty much everyone is, I'm sure there's a lot of that sense of Lauderman's like kind of helplessness of just like I'm trying to do something trying to make something of myself and attach some greater meaning to it and it's just not happening and why is it not happening so I I, unfortunately I I have to say that you've convinced me that (laughs) Lauderman is a sympathetic character this just might be my aversion to the so after reading so many like American exceptionalism novels Mm. like we were the Fountainhead by Anne Rand was required reading for me when I was a junior in high school, um, and ever since then I've never been able to sympathize with the character that's like Kemp. Well, that's not entirely true, but um, it does make me kind of uh, laugh at that character a little bit. But that's enough about Lauderman because I want to kind of talk about um, something that is so redeemable about Kemp and at least the way Kemp describes things to us. And it's this quote. I just when I heard this line, I was like. That's good. That's good. It was Sanderson had a firm practice grip, and I had a feeling that somewhere in his youth he'd been told that a man was measured by the strength of his handshake. And it's that line that is just so astute and so acutely, you you can tell, like, that's like an instinct. Like, you can, to have that kind of instinct about people, mm-hmm. I think is so impressive, and it is like a measure of a very good journalist, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I think, I mean, we t- you talked about how he gets inspiration from Hemingway, Fitzgerald. It reminded me a lot of Steinbeck, too. Like, and Steinbeck's one of my favorite writers because he captures those little details in, like, people and scenes. And just, it's so simple, yet you get so much, like, information about a person from this. And I think, I think that's why it's interesting, too, that, like, a character like Cheneau, um, which is his, well... Kemp sees this girl go in on the plane and he's like obsessed with her. He's kind of like has a big crush on her throughout the whole novel. And she ends up meeting Yemen, who's this other journalist there, who's even more of a scumbag than Kemp, which really is saying something. And they're together the whole novel, but he's got this like really like kind of like he's really focused on her during the whole novel. But what we get of her is a lot of like very physical descriptions, not much of that like deep like insight into like the male characters that we get for other things and Simone you have something to say about that I have so much so many thoughts (laughs) on this I think I think um Thompson does a great job of characterizing the men in the story Mm. and I think he does a 
comically terrible job of characterizing Chanel as any semblance of a human being. Mm-hmm. Chanel is just, it's on a, I want to believe on some sort of um, meta level that he realizes how ridiculous his prose uh, concerning Chanel sounds, but I don't think he does. He says things like her, <laughs> he has this one line where he's like, she was so tiny, I thought she was going to like fall apart, but yet she didn't have like, she was so like fully developed. And it's like this weird, you know, characterization, not even characterization, just weird descriptions of her, her body as an extension of her personhood. Mm-hmm. She is no more than a few empty lines, um, a few throwaway pieces of dialogue, um, and her and and her body, and that's about it. And I think the narrator for the audiobook is like so like he first of all, the narrator's just good. Like he's just great, like straight on. But like great, his great. voice for Chanel is so like mindless and kind of annoying. That it's just like it you just get her so well, at least from the perspective of Kemp. And like I remember that line too, because I think as like if we take like kind of another like kind of meta-analysis of the work as a whole, it's like a really interesting look into how we've changed, maybe haven't changed, as like characterizing women and like seeing them and determining their worth and like picking them apart. Because I remember that line where he was like, because she was so small, he was surprised by how like wonderfully full like her body was compared to other girls who were her size they tended to be like like little girls what he was saying like they're just like skinny and like they didn't have that like fullness and i i guess it was supposed to be kind of like a compliment like oh there's this like interior to her that like he really just wants to like grab at and understand but like we really don't get much of like what makes her very special other than like she was like the one blonde girl that he saw on the plane like that's what drew his attention originally and then it seems like she's pretty much the only, like, attractive woman he interacts with in the story. I know that, like, the rest of the story is just talking about how, like, unattractive all these other women are. Like, he calls them, like, fat or, like, pigs or something. It's just like, okay, well, I mean, if we can appreciate... I guess we can appreciate just how terrible of a perspective this is. But it's really, I think, very honest to the rest of the character. That's the only redeemable quality of this. I just think, yeah, I, I read something where someone was like, oh, it's like part of a love story. And I just think that is absolutely false. Mm-hmm. There is no love story aspect. Chanel is someone who he is just um, interested in on a very surface level. Um, and she's just also there. That's yes. about the end. And it's about the beginning. And she has this very weird Lord of the Flies-esque dancing um, moment mm-hmm. near the end where that's also got so many implications and problems um, in which she it were led to believe that she suffered some sort of sexual assault mm-hmm. and they just abandoned her more or less they being Yemen who's her boyfriend and then Kemp who is just the guy who probably looks at her constantly yep. and another thing that I really that I know just Thompson didn't think about when he was writing it is how uncomfortable Chanel probably was with everyone being obsessed with her and Mm. just the way she looked because who wouldn't be there's no person that is just that comfortable with being ogled 24 7 yeah I that's such an interesting point actually I've never I never thought about that way because I was so like weirded out just by hearing the descriptions and like it would like for me those are the parts of the book that, like, you wanted to, like, get through. It's like, okay, great. Like, you're, I get it. You're in this girl. Can we move on to the rest of the story? Um, 
but like I think that's such like an interesting way of looking at how like we like even as women we start to like kind of like dismiss other like we're like kind of like conditioned to dismiss other female characters is just like okay here's the eye candy let's move on let's go to the better parts but like that scene where she is i mean it was all but said that she was raped um it's like a really pivotal part of the book and part of it is that like we know she's like traumatized by this like experience and yet the most we hear from it is first of all she says she doesn't remember it and Actually, okay, actually, this is going to be a little, like, weird. But, like, I feel like we should talk about his reaction to that, too. Because we hear that she doesn't remember everything, so it seems like she was drugged. Um, I guess I guess for reference, there was a scene in the book where Kemp and Yemen and Chanel go to St. Thomas, I think, another island in the Caribbean, to go to this big, like, carnival fair thing and they Kemp is there for a story Gaiman was fired earlier in the novel spoiler alert so him and Chanel are just there to go to see the carnival and ostensibly Chanel just was really into dancing she's characters are like really carefree like happy go lucky girl um and then sometime during the novel or sometime during the carnival near the end things get really crazy and she starts dancing and this man starts undressing her on the dance floor until she's fully nude, just dancing. And Yemen tries to grab at her, but what ends up happening is she kind of gets dragged along with this man who she was dancing with and a whole other crowd of people. And she just um, shows up days later after she's gone missing for a while. And she says that she doesn't remember what happened. And it's very strongly implied that she was assaulted. Um, but after that episode, it's weird how dismissive of her the rest of the characters are in the novel Yemen, even Kemp to a certain extent um and that treatment of Chano as a character too by Thompson I think is interesting because it seems like he's sympathetic to the idea of like this girl who's unprotected and is very clearly taken advantage of even earlier in the novel when they were in the cab before the actual assault happened they were with this cab driver taking Chanel into a cab and she was like unconscious. And Thompson has this line where Kemp's like, he was disgusted by the cab driver because the cab driver thinks that they're going to rape her on the beach. And he just drives her as if like, he's totally fine with that happening. Um, so there's this weird, like kind of tension where it seems like on the one hand, Thompson is like aware of like how like disgusting and terrible it is to be a woman in this environment on the other hand, he writes Chanel the way he does, and he has these lines of, like, brightly wrapped nipples and, like, just, like, very, like, gross, like, misogynist kind of language. I definitely think it's just a fundamental not... It's a fundamental part of him not understanding what's going on when he's writing Chanel. And I think it's also... I think what is understood in the writing is why he feels weirdly guilty about it. And I think this is, has to do with the fact that he himself um, puts himself between the characters of Yemen and Kemp. Like whenever Thompson was working in Puerto Rico, um, a lot of his experiences are that that have been experienced by Kemp, but also a lot of his characterization. And actually, there's a direct quote um, that he wrote in real life to We'll get into it. Um, but that exact line is said by Yemen in the book. And I mm. think this is because 
Yemen is a type of person that Thompson wanted to be in San Juan, um, while Kemp is more who he actually was. And in this circumstance, I think it's because Yemen is very violent, right? Mm -hmm. If he could have physically gotten to Chanel, he was the one who was trying to rescue Chanel, you know, in part because Chanel is his girlfriend, but also because Yemen is just a force to be reckoned with physically. But Kemp doesn't really seem to do much besides really watch uh, Mm -hmm. that whole situation unfold. And he has this feeling of helplessness, like, though, there was only so much we could do, but they could have looked harder. They could have worked more to find her. And um, he doesn't seem that devastated whenever Yemen and when Yemen and Kemp kind of discuss what happened at the end. Yemen is sobbing. We get this description for the first time of a man crying, I believe. And that's whenever Yemen is kind of coming to terms with what happened to Chanel. But Kemp is just an observer here. And I think there's this, like, fear of being sympathetic almost. Um, and, and I think that, like, uh, somewhere in the middle we find Thompson. I think I think that characterization of Kemp as an observer is good, too, because it tracks with a lot of, one, what makes Thompson a really good journalist is how much of an observer he is. But on the other hand, like you said, it's he doesn't get to get that like glory he doesn't get those experiences and that like physical like like response that he like is so craving because he never like fully involves himself in what he's really doing it's always a means to an end that he doesn't even quite know what the end is and i think too that's interesting because there's multiple times where yamen despite this apparently great profound like reaction to hearing about Chanel's assault he is constantly hitting her like throughout oh the yeah no he sucks <laughs> he, he like he he straight up like is a domestic abuser like he locks her in their in their apartment at one point um and Kemp doesn't do anything about it he doesn't yeah. he doesn't even say anything that's a really good point. um and so th- I, I just thought your comment is like of him as observers I didn't make that connection until just now yeah but, yeah and it's definitely we we should here's the problem. We should sympathize immensely with Chanel. She's beaten constantly by the men around her. And she is just, but the problem is that she is so unrealistically happy. She's characterized Mm -hmm. as so carefree and so amazing. And the circumstances around her just do not support. It's logically implausible for us to understand in a world with so many characters that are so specific and so detailed in which we can imagine them without any assistance um i in fact there's a movie that came out in 2011 um called the rum diary and it was actually starred johnny depp because thompson and depp were actually buddies (laughs) um but depp was in the other movie huh fear and loathing las vegas yeah yeah um but it's just the characters in that movie are so one-dimensional compared to what we read. And it, that's it's mostly because of how well they're written. But the problem is just there is no like logical understanding. We don't understand why Chanel is the way she is, but we can understand why Solace, the photographer, is why the way he is. And we understand why Kemp is why the way he is. Mm-hmm. And um, for all the bad characters, like the money-hungry and the PR-obsessed characters like Sagara and Sanderson... We understand them because their motivations are clear and the writing supports that. But it's just not the case for Chanel. Yeah. I think that's like kind of like one of those paradoxes of this whole book, too, is, is it's not just Chanel, actually. It's also 
like any character that's not white <laughs> yeah, yeah is like very much like a reductive like stereotype so it's so it's it's interesting to see just like how like nuanced and powerful and like amazingly he can write these characters and yet at the same time after like observing so well like his surroundings and, like really just like giving us these great descriptions so that we can imagine ourselves there characters who are women or who are puerto rican or black are just like these like weird kind of awful caricatures of like the worst of like american imperialism yeah um and like the way that like the thing is like thompson i think also knows like how like disgusting of like a system it is you know to like have like these americans opening bowling alleys and just hotels everywhere and like reducing puerto rico to this like little like baby state of the u.s that doesn't fully get like all the benefits of actually being part of a country um and yet he's still like fully engages in like this like very like kind of gross description of people who like would could be very full interesting characters it makes me wonder it makes me wonder on two accounts um because there's this really funny uh, GQ article, um, and it talks about Hunter Thompson and his life and his experience writing The Rum Diary. Um, and it, it does mention that Hunter Thompson really badly wanted to write the next great American novel, but he was just not good at fiction. And that's what the article says. And I think that this is because he, what he pays attention to, I think he's a really good journalist. So what he pays attention to and what is important to him and what affects him, he can write great. But then things that aren't so important to him, like Puerto Rico for Kemp, for Thompson, is a pit stop. It's a vacation place. You know, it's not his home. It's not the way he grew up. And I think this is why lines like this hit seem so effective. Like when he's talking about um, football players um, Kemp says they were dolts and thugs for the most part, huge pieces of meat trained to a fine edge, but somehow they mastered these complex plays and patterns, and in rare moments, they were artists. And I just thought that this description of football players is the most jaded, I didn't make JV football <laughs> quote that I've ever heard in my life. And it's just so obvious to me in this circumstance that Thompson is really good at writing what affects him and what really happened. Like, that's why I think so much of this book is not fiction to an extent. It's mostly accurate um, retellings of things that happened to people around him or him himself. Um, but if there's this world that's too far away for him to understand, which he probably wasn't working very hard to understand <laughs> um, the native uh, and local cultures of Puerto Rico, then he does a very poor job of representing it, which yeah. is a shame because if he had immersed himself, I'm sure it could have been a very full, rich picture like you were saying. Yeah. And I think thinking about it, I think the um, maybe the, the little episode in the book that maybe best like shows that like weird dichotomy is when him, Yemen and was it Sala got arrested? Yeah. Yeah, when those I love Sala, by the way. Sala's <laughs> the best. Sala's <laughs> got, like, a great voice in the yeah, audio yeah, book. Yeah. Like, he's just the most, like, God, you're smart. Like, I get it. You're, you're, you're great. Um, <laughs> These but... people are vicious. <laughs> <laughs> they, get, they get arrested for um, basically not for... So they go to a bar before. Yemen refuses to pay his tab. The waiter is like, pay, pay, your, pay, your, pay your bill, please. And he asks him multiple times. Yemen's like, nah, screw it. I'm out of here. They run away, get chased down by the locals who are trying to help this bartender get his money back. 
um, and it gets into a huge fight. They get arrested. They get beat up by the police a little bit. And they go to court. Um, and there's this moment in the courtroom where um, Kemp is talking about how, like, it was, like, the way they're being treated is, like, so unjust. Which, you know, yes, objectively, they weren't given, like, lawyers. They weren't given a call. They go to the courtroom. Um, and they're, the test, the court, the judge is hearing the testimony. And everyone who is involved is speaking Spanish because this is Puerto Rico and they're giving their testimony in Spanish. And they finally, it's Kemp and Yemen and um, Sala's turn to go up and respond, I guess. And they're like, we need to hear the testimony in English. And the judge is like, why? Why do we have to tell? Like, you've, you already know what happened and why do we have to start speaking English for you? You know where you are, right? Um, and the fact that it goes no further... And basically Kemp being like, well, that was crappy, the judge. <laughs> like, that, that sucked. And then they eventually, of course, of course, in the end, too, they get off for because they get some lawyer to come in and tell and basically get get them out of the get them out of their wraps. Um, but just like that little episode where it's like he doesn't one, he fully, fully describes how white men got off in Puerto Rico in the 60s because simply by virtue of being American and being attached to an American publication. Um, and also just how little they cared to even understand or really immerse themselves in the very places they were reporting on. That's what makes me hope and wish that this is just some really smart meta-commentary. Because that moment where the judge says, we don't need to speak English, was baller. <laughs> and, then, and then Sanderson, you're right, Sanderson comes up and he says, these men are American journalists, and that's the beginning of the speech that gets them completely off scot-free. And it's just, it, we just wonder, and it keeps happening. It just, mm -hmm. they commit, Yaman commits murder and just leaves. <laughs> that's essentially how the novel yeah. um, finds its little ending. But I just, it it's disappointing. Um, and that court scene, I think, when you consider... When you consider that line specifically, it does make me wonder what Thompson was really thinking because he mm -hmm. was clearly so aware of the circumstances in which those journalists were. It, it, he sees <laughs> that they are just idiots in, in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I do I do want to say one little thing about Moberg, who is like kind of the character who's just a total goof. Um, I think he they imply that he's just got like severe debilitating issues but he's still a journalist um and lotterman calls all of his employees like perverts and snakes and terrible things and for no reason but um moberg helps them get out of um, jail he's kind of a helping hand because he's like got a hand in the police and stuff like mm -hmm. that um but there's just this one line that moberg says and the voice for moberg is so funny it's just i'm it's just so it, it's hilarious. It. <laughs> and there's just, yeah, there's this one line where he thinks, Latterman thinks I'm a demogorgon. <laughs> That's the idea of Latterman's voice where it goes demogorgon. It's so funny. But Moberg saying that is just, it just got me. Like the descriptions of what is terrible in this book, like the descriptions that they use constantly, um, the Americans use to describe each other, just mm -hmm. like, they call each other, they all call each other perverts constantly. Um, but this idea of Moberg being this antichrist is just the funniest thing. And I want to know what you thought of Moberg. I mean, Moberg, if I if I remember correctly, he's like the most competent person in that newsroom, no? But he's like the craziest. <laughs> I think, I mean, like, it's just like everyone is like the whole 
cast is just such like a cesspit you know like there's no there's like like what makes the redeeming qualities of these people are arguably like their worst qualities like moberg's just like absolute like weirdness is like what makes them the most endearing and like that's another thing that the i think actually think about that's what makes the voice the, the guy who reads this book so good is he really capitalizes on like the absolute like nastiest parts of their voices and just like you get like that gross quality from them but because of that you like identify them and you identify not necessarily with them but you you kind of love them like same with like it's God. definitely that way with sala like yeah. sala's so annoying you know that person who just thinks they're the shit and mm-hmm. and thinks they're like they know everything and they're the most competent person they can they can leave whenever they want because anyone will take them and any they can get hired onto any publication um but we just we respect him because he can yeah and, and yeman too like his voice where he's like i'm gonna hit you like that kind of thing like he's so like that like lazy doesn't care but then just like does it you know like that pure like just absolute disdain for everything other than like what serves him and what he wants to do and there's actually this this i remember a very specific line that yaman says in which he says that he wants to scatter his teeth scatter someone's teeth all over the bar floor or something and honestly he probably did scatter teeth everywhere but um, when Thompson was in New York writing and he was actually pitching the rum diary or asking um, for a literary, um, asking for a uh, literary agent to take him on for the rum diary, um, he asked, of course, he had to ask the best literary agent in New York. He wouldn't have anything less. So he asks this guy, Sterling Lord, who's known as the dean of literary agents, um, to take him on as a client. And Sterling Lord responds like, no, I'm not going to take you on, man. You've never, you know, you haven't really done anything. Um, And then Thompson responds to him, his refusal. And he says, here's the 20 cents it costs you to send the damn short stories back. I don't want to feel that I owe you anything because when I see you, I intend to cave in your face and scatter your teeth all over Fifth Avenue. Oh my God. And that just, that was when I realized that this is not fiction. This is when I realized that Thompson is just a little bit of an overgrown narcissistic baby, but I kind of love a lot of the rum diary anyway. And you know what's so funny is the thing, I, I haven't read other Thompson's works like in its entirety but I have seen like little snippets of interviews from him and it's so funny because like the way you perceive Hunter Thompson is a lot of like how you perceive these characters if you were to meet them in real life because Hunter Thompson has this like outsized reputation of being like this badass like super cool like tough like down for anything just like like every like 20 year old boy probably would want to be him you know and every like male journalist is probably like inspired to be hunter thompson at some point but like when you see hunter thompson in real life he is like this small bald like kind of scrawny like it got a little bit of a nasally voice like he is not like you wouldn't run into this man on the street and be like this man's gonna cave my face in and scatter my teeth you know and like if we were to football quote too that's (laughs) totally why i think that and if we were to meet any of these characters in real life like we get these like amazing like rich descriptions of them and i'm sure they'd be accurate but like i'm sure that we wouldn't look at them and be like 
dang, like this guy's cool. Like I like I bet there's a lot of like rich like interior thoughts going on like right now. You'd be like, these are scumbags. These journalists suck. I hate them. You know. <laughs> this is also why I'm so glad that the Rum Diary 2011 movie did not <laughs> was not received very well because I am so scared as a student in journalism. I'm so scared of the alternate universe in which everyone wants to go into journalism because they think it's like the mm-hmm. the Puerto Rico <laughs> dream that Thompson describes. <laughs> um, fun fact also, in the movie, um, Johnny Depp is starring as Kemp um, and Amber Heard is Cheneau. And that is the first time that he met Amber Heard as well. Wow. So a lot of just like kind of a relevant cultural moves are connected to this book all i'm getting from this is that like reality truly is stranger than fiction because like i'm i'm, I'm thinking through like johnny depp to like amber Heard, like all of these people are like too perfectly casted like they are the characters they're not acting at that point you know johnny depp and hunter thompson kind of are like very sim like thinking about the very similar like tendencies like very similar character types I'm not. I'm not surprised they're buddies in real life. This is. I think it's a book. I think *Rum Diary* is probably something that works because it's it's read. You have to like read this to understand it because it's all like so interior and there's so much depending on like the thoughts and like no matter how good of an actor Johnny Depp is, it just doesn't come across like that in the movie. You just like are kind of like probably put off by it. Now I want to watch it though. Yeah, we should watch it. <laughs> I think the the definitely a similarity is glorifying the barbarism and the hedonism and the drinking. But although um, they are constantly drunk in the book, the thoughts are so clear <laughs> that it's almost this unreality, right? It's it's bordering on magical realism. How how quick these characters are whenever they are killing themselves constantly with the amount of alcohol that they consume yeah actually you know i think that is another like great part of like how accurate this book is because i feel like when you're drunk you still have like you're still thinking you're still like you're still yourself but like the physical like reality of what you can do and like what you're saying like don't match up and like just that like understanding of how it is in the like that description of it in the book and like how the characters act i think really reflects just how (laughs) inebriated they are throughout the whole story well this was only a six hour and 50 minute listen um if you want to read a good book that's very short frankly i think you should listen to this book um Mm -hmm. if you're a student and you're just or if you're a commuter really you have time to listen to a book and this book is wildly entertaining based on the narrator Mm -hmm. um he has great voices for all the different characters and it's also just it's an easy read too it's it's nothing too challenging but it's definitely stimulating and i would i would recommend reading it um some people call it the long lost novel and i just hesitate to say too much praise about it because i'm scared hunter thompson will find this (laughs) and be happy (laughs) no i'm scared he'll he'll shake my hand (laughs) i prefer i prefer someone like hunter thompson to to want to scatter my teeth i think sometimes (laughs) i strongly second that recommendation Thanks for listening to this episode of Book Blab. You can read a full review of The Rum Diary on the Daily Campus. This episode concludes Season 1 of the DC's Books Podcast. Thanks again, and keep an eye out for Season 2.